1: Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And there is a great new four-part documentary on Netflix called The Sons of Sam, produced and directed by Talk is Jericho alumni Joshua Zeman. Uh, he is behind the Murder Mountain and Cropsy documentaries. He was on Talk is Jericho to discuss both, along with urban legends. Uh, Josh is back on Talk is Jericho today to take us behind the scenes of his latest documentary series. It's a huge hit. It's been top 10 uh, ever since it came out a few weeks ago. Uh, It's talking about the son of Sam serial killings that terrorized New York City between the summer of 1976 and July of 1977. Josh actually tells a story about investigative journalist Maury Terry, who never believed that the son of Sam killer, David Berkowitz, acted alone in killing six people and wounding seven others. Uh, Terry spent years doing his own investigation into Berkowitz and the crimes and turned over his case file to Josh for the documentary. So Josh went deeper down Maury's rabbit hole, which included satanic panic in the 80s, cults, a connection to Charles Manson even, and also explains why New York City police were never interested in exploring the possibility that Berkowitz did not act alone or pursue other suspects. This is a fascinating look into Maury Terry's investigation and the toll it took on him. He basically gave his life for it and the state of New York City at the time of the murders and how it affected everyday life and the culture. Uh, Like I said, the four-part series Sons of Sam is available on Netflix right now, narrated by uh, award-winning actor Paul Giamatti.
2: Paul was really great. I had worked with him on a film a number of years ago, and when I approached him, uh, he was totally gung-ho to do it. He's totally into fun and weird stuff and uh, loves everything true crime. And so he actually hadn't known about uh, the subject matter, but we kind of talked about it. And I thought he just did a, a wonderful job of kind of, you know, really getting Maury's style and and intonations. And so couldn't be happier with that.
1: All right. Josh is back to give us more insight into his Sons of Sam documentary, what inspired him to, uh, to tell Maury's story. And you can find out even more information about Josh's uh, discoveries on searching for the Sons of Sam Uh, the podcast that Josh has just started a few weeks ago. You can get that wherever you hear all of your podcasts, including Talk is Jericho, every Wednesday and Friday. Go down the rabbit hole with Josh Zeman uh, twice a week, but go down it even further right here on Talk is Jericho. And the conversation starts now. So one of my favorite uh, documentary filmmakers is uh, Josh Zeman. And you've been on, this is actually your third time here on Talk is Jericho, uh, obviously to discuss Sons of Sam, which is pretty much the hottest new documentary in America today. And you were on before to discuss Murder Mountain, which was amazing. And then of course, Killer Legends slash Cropsey discussing Urban Legends. Uh, you keep finding these really cool strange yet very uh, accessible topics that everybody knows about, but no one really thinks about making a movie about.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like my own little Marvel universe. Uh, <laughs> you know, I had done Cropsy, and while making Cropsy. uh, I kept hearing these weird rumors that somehow the kids in Cropsy were related to the Son of Sam and maybe had been taken by a cult that was related to the Son of Sam. And I was like, what the hell are you guys talking about? Uh, I thought it was all satanic panic and the cops were like, no, there's actually some truth to this. Sit down, let me tell you a story. And they were like, we've worked on a number of cases. We, Some of us have worked on the Son of Sam case and we actually believed there was much more than the NYPD you know, the New York Police Department, let us talk about publicly. And they said, go read this book called The Ultimate Evil by Maury Terry. Uh, I read it, it scared the shit out of me. I don't scare easy. Right. And uh, and I was like, okay, I I gotta go check this guy, Maury Terry, out. I met him, he was like on an oxygen mask in his house, in Yonkers, and he was a full-blown conspiracy nut, but, his stuff about the son of Sam was like real and good. And I started to call up all these other cops and like really checked out the story. And he checked out and his story Mm. checked out. I had been doing another show called The Killing Season about Long Island. And I got word that Maury Terry had passed away. And I was like, what am I gonna do now? And suddenly a couple months later, I got three boxes, all his files. And I was like, yeah, and I was like, wow. This is. I'm gonna make this documentary about him.
1: First of all, just so people that don't know, Cropsey was based on kind of a, an urban legend of someone that might actually have been a real killer, but it was kind of all in that New York Long Island area. Yeah, right?
2: yeah. yeah. Basically, basically, it was like this urban legend we had growing up about. oh, well, basically, Cropsey is an urban legend that's in sleepweight camps in upstate New York, and it's and it's kind of mm-hmm. like all the same. It's about a guy, usually like a caretaker, or like some judge or somebody whose wife gets killed by a bunch of campers lighting matches and the forest burns down and somehow that made its way down to Staten Island and got like hooked in to this Willowbrook mental institution and it became this like other child snatching story that actually turned out to be real.
1: Right. So that's kind of the background to lead you to where you're talking about with with the sons of Sam and there's so much to talk about. but, But So who sent you this box of information about Maury Terry? Moritari's
2: Terry's family. Basically he died and mm-hmm. he like sent me, you know, his family, he told his family to to send me his case files. And so...
1: So he knew about you and and, and, and the documentaries you had done or did he know that you were starting to sniff around the Sons of Sam idea? No, like when Cropsey was being made,
2: you know, and the cops were like, no, this story's real. They said, go go read Moritari's Terry's gotcha. book. I, gotcha. I, I read Moritari's Terry's book. I went to visit him in his house and he was like, he's like, I saw Cropsey. I really liked it. Do mm. do something about the son of Sam. And I didn't know if this guy was nuts or not. I didn't know if he was a total conspiracy nut, but he checked out. But I didn't really want to make a documentary about him. I, I, he was too right. close to the story. He was too nutso. But only when he passed away and sent me his case files was I like, okay, you know, I can well, make a documentary interesting, It's, it's about interesting
1: me. too, Josh. Like obviously you and I have a, a personal relationship and you're always, like I said, always finding these really cool documentary subjects. But it seems like the son of Sam, especially now, I find after the pandemic started, we've been doing this for a year. Everyone – like I have watched Ramirez and Henry Lee Lucas and Bundy and uh, Gacy so when I see this, this the Berkowitz, I'm like, eh, I've kind of seen enough about Berkowitz. But because it's you, I watch. And now, of course, obviously, it's just tremendous. About, it's actually a common theme if you watch any of these movies about how sometimes the police don't want to know the truth because they just want the arrests. But to kind of delve into a son of Sam David Berkowitz story, I can see why you might be a little bit reticent about it at first because it's kind of been – You know, it's kind of trodden territory, shall we say. I mean, people think that they know what the story is. But yeah, not this one.
2: Yeah, I mean, they think they know it's about a guy who shot couples in lovers' lanes. I mean, David Berkowitz is like the original story. Like if you watch movies, Mm. it it all came from this, like the letters and the demon dog and the shooting couples in lover's lanes. Like this is where like all movie tropes came from Mm -hmm. and people think that they know this story, but that's the whole thing. They don't, not this story. This is a total different whole ball of wax.
1: So when uh, Maury Terry's family sends you all of this stuff, what? are you finding in here that really makes you go, holy shit, we've got something.
2: It was the level of his files. Like I would pull out a file and I would look at it and they'd be like, Bob, devil worshiper killed this, killed that. And I was like, oh my God, this Mm -hmm. is amazing. And then there were all these tapes that he had of conversations that he recorded with David Berkowitz with people. Like, and I'm, when I say recorded, I'm talking like press play and put the phone up, to the yeah. speaker on that type, like this is like this 1980s- is not high
1: quality uh, material here.
2: No, this is 1980s mixtape off the radio type of shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So, it so like it it just has that feel, and it's so authentic, and it's like okay, you know this guy's recorded enough stuff about his life. He saved all the times that he was on the radio. He was on enough programs. And he's talking about devil worshiping and son of Sam being part of a cult. I'm in.
1: So let's kind of go back then, because the original story, like you mentioned, and and, and if you're into the true crime aspect, which a lot of listeners on our show is are um, Berkowitz, 77, 76, whatever it was, 13 people get shot, six die. And then they finally catch the son of Sam, who is David Berkowitz. Um, and that's kind of the the way that the story goes. That's the way that everybody knows the story. And that's just it done, signed, sealed, delivered. But what we're seeing in your movie is that's not necessarily the case. So where do you start with um, a story like this, which is pretty much boiled into the fibers of, America, of Americana at this point in time?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean – Look, you have to tell the story first about this incredible time in New York City. Yeah, as you said, it's 7677. New York City had just been on the brink of bankruptcy. The crime rate is four murders a night. Wow. Basically, there's no social services, right? So there's no garbage, there's garbage strikes, garbage is piling up. Disco is everywhere, punk scene is just happening. Um, there's all these arsons that are going on in the Bronx. So the Bronx is burning. You've got the new 1977 New York Yankees. You've got uh, a blackout, an incredible blackout where like millions and millions of dollars, um, of damage are happening. And all through this, through, through 13 months, you've got this guy, the son of Sam, basically shooting couples in cars in Mm. Lover's Lane. Mm. People are terrified. You have girls cutting their hair. Couples aren't even going out. The streets are empty. They're not going to restaurants, bars, and discos. Everybody's completely afraid. So you tell that story of that investigation. These letters that had been sent to both the police dropped at the scene and sent to New York Daily News columnist Jimmy Breslin. The Mm. letters start like the line is hello from the gutters of New York City. I mean, what what kind of line
1: is that? That's unbelievable. That's like a, movie. That's a letter that's written by the killer to the police. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, and it's like the, these letters are unbelievable. And so, you know, there's this we tell the story of, of theoretically the police investigation, what they did. And, you know, they really try and find this guy and finally theoretically threw a parking ticket. That's been given around one of the crime scenes. They do some research and find that that parking ticket leads them back to this guy, David Berkowitz. They go up to his house, look in his car, and there's just so happens to be a letter (laughs) and a machine gun in the back of his car. And they catch the son of Sam. He gets paraded in front of all these people. He's smiling, this weird smile. Mm -hmm. And he says, I did it more so. I was commanded by a demon dog to do it. His neighbor's dog, theoretically, that was speaking to him. That's actually a six thousand year old being named Sam, and the and the dog commanded me to kill and shoot all these couples. And that's it. He gives good evidence. He give he knows details about the case. And they say, okay, you know, you're you obviously did it. You know, you're crazy. Ryan right. Field so delivered. Lock him up, and that's it. He gets 400 years. Really? Yeah. And the nightmare is over, except for this one journalist named Maury Terry from Yonkers, New York, uh, who happens to be around the same neighborhood where Berkowitz is arrested. And he starts to like really weirdly question the investigation. He starts to go back and look at all the details. He looks at all these vehicles that the cops had been looking at. He looks at all these sketches that weirdly don't look anything like you know and you can't really rely on sketches but like these sketches are weird because like uh, like two people would sketch the exact same person but that doesn't look anything like david berkowitz so there's all this he even finds clues in the letters like he finds like word association maps and stuff just all this weird stuff but why the biggest thing is that he finds these two neighbors of, of David Berkowitz, Michael Carr and John Carr, who happen to be friends with Berkowitz, and they also happen to be the sons of that guy, Sam Carr, who owned the dog. They are the literal sons of Sam. Sons of Sam.
1: <laughs> so, y- this is how it happens, and it's a crazy story, but it's kind of true. Well, you know, just to kind of jump in here, Josh, it's funny, too, because I, I always I thought it was interesting that it was John Wheat Carr and then his sister was wheat car yeah they have the same name like what the hell's going on in the car house
2: (laughs) i think what happened was it's funny i think what happened was her name is wheat car and i think uh, there was a joke between the the boy and the uh, the kid the brother and friends they would they gave him the nickname of the sister like oh you like to eat wheaties huh you know they like we're Around with him and like you know right. did like that and so he gets the he gets the nickname the, the wheat John car. Wheat Car yeah
1: but I thought it was interesting and it's so relatable to what's going on now and especially last year twenty twenty in nineteen seventy seven where like we said New York City what is there thirty million people in the in the city let's say mm-hmm. give or take but you're talking about the whole city is in terror kind of almost like. Uh, to an extent like a coronavirus thing or even like a a vaccine thing where I don't want to take a vaccine because I remember that when the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, there was blood clots, for example, and there there were seven people that died of blood clots out of 7 million people that took it, which is literally one in a million, right? So when I see this back in 77, it's like this type of mania goes on. It doesn't matter what generation it is. People were terrified to go out in New York city because there was a one in a million chance that the son of Sam was going to shoot you. And one of the things that really got me was there was a father and once again, all of these things resonate so much more when you have kids. I don't know if you have kids or not, but I do now. So when the father is crying and saying like, I said, please don't go to Brooklyn or, or I'm probably getting this wrong. He said, okay, dad, I'll just stay in Queens. And then the kid gets shot in Queens. As a parent, you're like, that's on you for the rest of your life. So I can understand this whole city in panic. Like you said, New York City, just being in shambles already. And then throw in this serial killer who does kill six people, but those six parents are, are times are multiplied by six million parents in that area where this all happened.
2: You're totally right. I mean, the chances of getting shot by the Summer Sam are so low comparatively. Right. Like people were getting shot; four people were dying a night in New right,
1: Paris. right, right, right.
2: But you know, it's the idea that it's random. You know, that's one of the things. It's it's like. You could be anywhere, and he's going to come up and get you. And look, New York City hadn't had, like, this kind of serial killer, weirdly enough. Like, they hadn't had it. You know, Bundy, everybody else had Bundy. They had Gacy. uh, They had the Zodiac. But New York City didn't really have this. And so this was kind of, like, new for them. And it was just a very... Weird time as well. It was a pretty depraved time. I mean, you had a lot of murder. You had a lot of drugs. You had a lot of crime, you know, disco and punk rock. It was it was sex, drugs and rock and roll in New York City in 1977. Like it was going on. (laughs) I talked to these people and I'm like, well, can you tell me what it was like back then? And they're like, it was like the pandemic. Wow. Right. People weren't going out. People were freaked out. People were staying at home. People were having house parties at home because they didn't want to go out. Kids weren't having sex. Like the whole generation of kids who were going fool around in cars weren't going out and doing that in New York City. So they were freaking
0: out. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
1: So when Berkowitz gets arrested and he even says, you know, I am the son of Sam, you caught me, he basically turns himself in once they find out. Where does Maury Terry start putting together that this is, there's more than meets the eye to this whole situation?
2: Good question. So it's a couple of things. Number one, Berkowitz gets arrested like just around the corner from where Maury lives. And Maury's a frustrated investigative reporter. He had been an investigative reporter and then he like got frustrated, he left and now he's working for IBM. He's writing like their, mm. their in-house <laughs> magazine. So he's, he wants to go on a on a, a mission, you know, and here's the interesting thing: there had been some grumblings around speaking to people that, like, you know, what? First, he doesn't look like the sketches; like, he looks nothing like these sketches. And right. everybody was kind of like, "Yeah, you know," but sketches aren't reliable. And then they're like, "Yeah, I know," but, but you know, these two women both sketch this one guy exactly, and like neither of them look like this guy, or they weren't even
1: close. They weren't even close.
2: They weren't, you know, and they sketched the same looking guy, except one had one hair part on the right side and the other one had the hair part on the other side. So like, you know, this is a good sketch because both girls sketch the exact same guy. So the sketches don't add up. And if you like read the newspaper reports, the police had been looking for a VW bug all over the place, like leading up to the crimes. And suddenly... Berkowitz gets arrested and everybody's like, well, where's this VW that's been seen in all these crimes? And it's the police just ignore it as well. Berkowitz had also been committing like some crimes up in Yonkers as well. And police didn't pick up on that either. And then more like one of those guys, you know how you have friends who like they can recall the everybody's batting average yeah right right, right you yeah. know from like 1983 Brewers course, you know you're yeah. like how do you know that you know <laughs> right. so he's a little bit on the spectrum and so he like plays word games and he notices like weird word games in the letters then probably one of the most interesting things is he sees this alias that the son of Sam writes in one of the letters he's like Let me give you some help. Look at these people. One of them is John Wheaties, rapist and suffocator of young girls. Well, Maury is just doing some investigative work. He's like, well, let me call the Carr family and ask them about this Berkowitz. He goes into the phone book and he's looking, oh, Sam Carr, and he looks underneath and right underneath Sam Carr's name, it says John Wheaties Carr. And he's like, wait a second, that's the same name that's in the letter. you know? And he's like, did the police not see this? Did anybody look at this guy's name in the phone book? And they didn't. In fact, the police spent tens of thousands of man hours going down every single rabbit hole, looking at every single clue. For example, somebody writes the wicker, they they use the word Wicked King Wicker. They go and arrange a screening of the wicker man because they're going down everything. Yeah, they did everything. But they didn't spend one hour interviewing Sam Carr and the son, the actual sons of Sam, the guys who were the sons of Sam, who happened to be friends with Berkowitz. They didn't interview them at all. If they did, they would know that he looks exactly like the sketch. So it was a little bit of the police not really kind of doing everything that they needed to do and Maury being a kind of a smart guy, a kind of genius, you know, when it comes to this stuff. And then from there, he just started to delve into the case and find out that the Carr brothers were a bunch of weird kids and they had like all these satanic connections and that a bunch of people were hanging out in Untermario Park, like the local park, and it just right. got weird from there.
1: You know, it, it really is such a strange situation and that you can see, you know, and and, and God bless Maury Terry, When you, as we get forward on, we'll talk about going on all these talk shows and talking about the evidence, evidence, evidence. And we saw this on the Henry Lee Lucas show, and we saw this on the on the uh, John Wayne Gacy show. Like the police just wanted it wrapped up, tied up in a bow, and it's Berkowitz, and don't f- with it. Yeah, even if you're not right, we don't want to hear it. And to me, that's where it gets scary because when you know, I thought the law and the law won. When the law decides a certain uh, you know way to go, like Maury Terry lived to his final days knowing that he could be right, but no one was listening to him. Did that frustrate you as well? When you were kind of looking into this and even interviewing a lot of the, the, the guys who were in their seventies or maybe even eighties now going, he was wrong. There was only one guy. There's no way there could be more than one and not even entertaining the possibility. It's like arguing with your grandfather.
2: Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like, okay, but think about this. He's like, ah, shut up. You know, he's like, (laughs) I I don't even want to hear about it. It's right. That's right. You know, and it's like, you're not going to argue with your grandfather because, you know, it's it's a losing proposition. You know what I'm saying? It's right. like, oh, there is no way I'm going to go there, you know? And so it was frustrating. The other thing is also, like, when you watch it, you realize, like, David Berkowitz was kind of like a sacrificial lamb yeah, so that New York City could get back on its feet. Like, let's say, for example, that there was a dude who walked up and said, look, I could get rid of the whole pandemic right now. Right. Just me. Right. Right. If I if I admit it and this gets rid of the pandemic, you would be like, absolutely. I don't care if you're guilty or not. (laughs) You know, we got to get back with our lives. And so it's kind of like that. You know, this dude, uh, you know, and plus he gave this like crazy story. And so everybody was like, yep, he did it. And then the press was like, thank God the mayor who was losing at the time in the polls like he wanted this thing over. New York City was losing so much money. And you know, Maury's at, at times Maury was like, I don't I don't understand how they how they didn't do this work. And I'm like, Maury, like it's Chinatown, Jack. What are you talking to me? Like how they didn't do this work. Like they needed this to be over. You know, people were freaking out. 13 months. So it was frustrating for Maury. Maury said that he the only thing he ever wanted was the police to admit that they were wrong.
1: That's hard to get though,
2: man. <laughs> you're never gonna no way, no way. Like the police are not, especially in New York City. Like they are not gonna admit that. And especially in 1970s. Another thing is that one of the one of the victims said to me, Josh, I love the fact that you're doing this story, but what do you think is gonna change first all the times that Maury Terry tried to do this? And I said, you know what? I think our relationship with the police has changed a little bit since then, mm-hmm. we're not so like it's not so. The good guys always wear white hats, right? And you know, and, you know the <laughs> right. bad guys always wear black hats. Like it's that 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 day is over. You know, we know that. You know, we watch the wire. We know that things are complicated. You know, we you know we watch a lot of cop shows. Watch the
1: news. I mean, God's
2: sake. Right? Um, exactly. You know, we know that these st- investigations mm-hmm. are complicated, and we know that you know politics comes into play, and we know. You know that it's never so easy as a demon dog told me to do it. Like that wouldn't fly today. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> You know it's interesting. um I, I love watching. And, and, and once again, I could ask you a million questions about how you got all this footage and all that stuff. But that's oh my god, a documentary thing. But just watching Mayor Abe Beam, whoever. Like I, my connection to the seventies and all the political topics growing up in Winnipeg, Canada, and then you're gonna laugh at this, was Cracked Magazine and Mad Magazine.
2: <laughs> Cracked right? Magazine. Because they
1: were very political and very much all into this. I knew the name David Burkwich when I was like nine years old because he was in Cracked and Mad. And seeing Mayor A. Beam and just how short he was,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I
1: had to go Google. He was five foot two. Cause here's this yeah, yeah here's this guy. Like Rey Mysterio is five foot four. So here's this guy who's running New York City. When they show close-ups of him, he looks like a badass dude. And then you see him, and then the cop comes to get his accolade. And it's like this munchkin. And I'm not cutting him down, but I was like, oh, my gosh. No, no. I never realized how short he was to be in that power position. He was an accountant. I mean,
2: they hired him because he was an accountant because New York City was bankrupt. And when you bankrupt. say New York City is gone bankrupt, like – that's not a good thing. Like you can't pay the police, you can't pay the teachers, you can't garbage. pay the garbage yeah. men. You know, like that, that's problematic. You know, <laughs> and so they hire this dude to to come in and get New York City out of bankruptcy. And this guy is just getting his ass kicked. You know, he's got mm-hmm. the he's got a blackout where people are rioting. He's got bombings. He's got everything. And then you know, then finally, the son of Sam comes in. He's smiling for the camera and he's like, you got me. We got him. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, and he's like, oh, please, right, 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 thank, yeah, you, yeah. thank you.
1: Thank <laughs> you. please. We needed you. We needed Thank it. you, Mr. Son of Sam. Right. Totally. David Burke goes, I love you.
2: You know? <laughs> and, and so that's what happened.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal.
1: So when, when does it suddenly switch over to this whole satanic cult thing? And one of the things that I texted you about, I was watching the show is, I don't want to get too far down, down the rabbit hole, but in the 80s, satanic panic, as you called it, I was in the midst of it. And I can't believe when you talked about Dungeons & Dragons that Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath and Motley Crue weren't brought up as well. Because all of that stuff was satanism in like 83 to 88 was... Like gold. It was the jam. It was the jam. It was. It was. So let's not get too far ahead of us. How did did that get from Berkowitz to Maury Terry to this satanic panic that happened only four or five years after Berkowitz's arrest? I
2: mean, that's a good question.
1: So. I ask a lot of good questions, man.
2: No, no, no. That's a good one. Because. (laughs) Because. Berkowitz is writing these letters or theoretically somebody is writing these letters and he's using a lot of like fairly like Beelzebub, real right. demonic terms. And he you said, think,
1: do you think Berkowitz wrote those letters? You said somebody,
2: mm, I think Berkowitz wrote the first letter and the Carr brothers wrote the second letter.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So you think the Carr brothers are right involved. Gotcha. Okay.
2: Oh yeah. They're very different. Like the first letter, the first letter looks like your typical, like, kid serial killer like, you know it says like i am the son of sam with like a lot of exclamation points right. it's, it's kind of written <laughs> in scrawl yeah it's like underlined with like There might as well be a heart you know <laughs> on top of it you know and, and he's like i and he's like i did it pow 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 mr monster yours in blood the second letter is like dear jim Hello from mm. the gutters of New York City. Like it's totally different. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the penmanship is so nicely drawn. In fact, it's so well drawn that the police went to Marvel and DC Comics to see if the writer had been a comic book illustrator. Really? A letter. Yeah. 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 Wow. Ironically, what they didn't know is that <laughs> in 1976, one of the Carr brothers, Michael Carr, had. Mm-hmm. Applied for a license, and it was for car illustration studios at his father's address. But they wow, they missed that one. So wow, okay, okay. Anyway, so how do we get satanic? So there's all these satanic references to the letter, and basically Maury, in his investigation, looks at the Carr brothers and starts to ask in like the underbelly of Yonkers what's going on, right. and they're all and they're all like, oh yeah, Berkey. And the Carr brothers and a whole bunch of people used to go hang out at this park called Untermyer Park, Mm. which is like a mile from their house. And it runs along the Hudson River. Underneath it is what's called, called the, quote, Croton Aqueduct, a.k.a. all these tunnels that the kids used to call the gutters or the sewer. So when the opening letter starts, hello from the gutters of New York city, he's seeing like all these connections to all these areas around Yonkers. And basically this was at a time when people were saying that there was all this chanting going on down in Untermeyer park. And these kids were basically doing theoretically devil worship, devil worshiping stuff. Now, I always thought it was satanic panic. I always thought it was bullshit. And I pushed Maury on that. And the cops are like, no, it was more than just kids with a kegger spray painting 666 and Iron Maiden stuff everywhere. Right. <laughs> this was this was real. And I'm like, are you sure? And then they would start to give me evidence. And yeah, it, it actually was real. There actually was a group of people who were delving into this in a far more Dungeons and Dragons style you know, way than you and I would think of like satanic panic. Like we know satanic panic. Like Mm -hmm. I, I was one of those kids listening to Metallica over and over again on my Walkman smoky pot and spray painting six, six, six everywhere. Like I totally Mm -hmm. did that, but this is on a different level.
1: So when you start talking about all of this mania that happens, because the media is always looking for a good story You know, don't let the truth get in the way of good story. (laughs) <laughs> did it, And we haven't even gotten to the Manson connection yet, but did it surprise you, as a documentarian, obviously, was it a stretch for you to connect Berkowitz, Sons of Sam, with the Satanic Panic, or was it something that you really felt one led to another, which once again led to, I texted you today about Morton Downey Jr. I forgot about that guy. What a guy, like super loud mouth, you know, smoking cigarettes. But I remember him and Geraldo and... And Sally Jesse Raphael and Mori Povich going deep to these satanic teenage issues. Do you think that really was all connected to Berkowitz and the Sons of Sam? So what happened was Berkowitz and the
2: Sons of I mean that's my whole thing, dude. I love to de- debunk satanic panic. I love to get in there and call bullshit on all of this. Yeah. But what happens when you're in there and like you finally find a case that's somewhat real right that has real shit to it like and that's the scenario like I am the biggest debunker in the world like if you see Cropsy it's like no it's it's about pedophilia right. it's not about this and killer legends it's debunking this stuff but this is the one case where I actually found some like crazy truth behind it and that's why I wanted to do it. Now everybody's like be careful Maury Terry's a real satanic panic dude And I was like, yes, but that almost makes it that much more interesting where you try and get into the mind of this dude. So when Maury Terry goes public with his story and says the police did not do a good job, they called Maury Terry a crackpot. Mm -hmm. Big time. Maury Terry doubles down and he says he's like starts to really search for like the truth. And he goes way down the rabbit hole. And he starts to bring up this satanic panic, this satanic stuff, which is actually in this case real. But nobody will listen to him except for the Geraldos, the Sally, Jesse Raphaels, the Morton Downey juniors and all those wackos. Why do they believe him? Because ironically, at the same time, satanic panic is sweeping across the nation. Mm -hmm. So Maury makes a deal with the devil. He decides that he is going to go on all these shows and tell them his real satanic stuff with Berkowitz so that he could spread the word. And the satanic panic people love him because finally they have a real case that they could like point to rather than some disgruntled teenager who shot another teenager.
1: Good point. A legendary case too.
2: Yeah. 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 You know, like Ricky Casso, you know, it's like Ricky Casso, which is a, famous long island case they're like oh it's about satanic you know this it's like no man he killed somebody else over like three bags of pcp but like he like he said say you love satan you know it's like just stupid (laughs) shit you know so he makes a deal with the devil he starts to go on all these tv shows they listen to him they put his story out there but he also loses credibility with everybody else
1: because he's going on these sens- sensationalistic shows. Exactly.
2: So gotcha. he lo- so he gets his story out there, but he loses credibility. And so by the end, you know, he's a broken man because he's lost all credibility because nobody would listen to him because they called him a crackpot. Yeah. And he doubled down. But then he became... That much more of a crackpot you know when your parents say don't make that face or you'll <laughs> <laughs> you know you'll be that way forever or don't act crazy because you yeah. might go crazy you know
1: that's kind of what well, happens. it's it's a sad story in a lot of ways because like i find Maury terry and first of all what a great name you know Maury terry it's easy to remember Maury terry but i i feel like bad for him because to me, I almost equate it like if you got put in jail for, for a crime you did not commit. I'm innocent. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I mean, you got a point, but nah, we've already thrown the book at you. We're not going to go back. It's kind of similar to that, but he has so much evidence. And like he keeps saying, look at the evidence. Listen, we told you, the son of Sam has been caught. It's Berkowitz. Shut your f- mouth and quit being a lunatic. And it, you feel bad for him because like you said, uh, and even his ex-wife said, he becomes obsessed to a point to where – his whole perspective is is tainted by this crusade that he's going on. And when nobody really wants to listen and he turns a lot of heads, but like you mentioned, he never gets the final push over the cliff that changes the course of time.
2: He even gets Berkowitz to admit that he didn't do it, but it's like a, nobody's going to believe a serial killer. You know, the whole point of the, of the doc is that one scene where the, where the, Berkowitz writes him a letter and says, Maury, no matter how good your evidence is, no one will ever truly believe you. The serial killer is giving this guy, you know, the most concise, smart information. And that's the total truth. I mean, imagine you had the, the clues that could unlock and solve one of the greatest true crime mysteries in all of history. But nobody would believe you. Yeah, that would make you go mad. Absolutely
1: insane. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I'll give you
2: a little example. I pitched this story for about ten years, hmm. and no one would no one would buy it. And I'm like, "What the fuck is wrong with you people? Uh-huh. <laughs> this is this is a great." idea this has got everything you know it's got serial killers it's got cults it's got new york city in 1977 right, right, right. Like, what more to you know like you know orgies in long island like what do you want you know and and i couldn't sell it so i was like i started to like get nuts i'm like what is it you know like why can't i sell this goddamn story mm-hmm. and so i felt like Maury. You know, I'm sitting there smoking cigarettes right, right, right. all the time. Like Maury is. I'm like, why can't that? You know, I was like, these motherfuckers won't take this show. There must right. be some kind of conspiracy, you know. And so, like, I felt that.
1: Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And don't forget to check out Searching for the Sons of Sam, Josh's bi-weekly podcast every Wednesday and Friday. You can listen to it anywhere you listen to podcasts. He goes deeper down the rabbit hole talking about his documentary and the and the circumstances behind it. The Sons of Sam, it's on Netflix now. And uh, we go back to Josh Zeman right here on Talk is Jericho. Let's go back to, I, I just had a, a great show a few weeks ago with Stephanie Harlow talking about the, kind of the intricacies of the Manson family. Where did you find the connection with with Berkowitz and Charles Manson? So, Maury believed, th- and this is
2: through who you might, the name you might know, um, Ed Sanders. Mm-hmm. You know, Ed Sanders writes the definitive book on Manson called The right. Family, right? Right, right, right. And in it, Ed Sanders basically figures out that Manson got his helter-skelter prophecy from another religious group called the process, the process church of the final judgment that he hooked up with in San Francisco, in the hate, right? when everything was going on in 66, 67. And it just so happens that David Berkowitz was also connected with Mm. the church of the process. And, it's basically Ed Sanders, who's like the definitive conspiracy conspiracy smart guy about Manson and Maury Terry, who is the definitive smart guy about, you know, uh, Berkowitz. They kind of hook up and they kind of come to this whole idea. And right. it's actually kind of interesting. You know, for those of you who don't know, the process church of the final judgment starts in London. In the late 1960s, and they are basically two excommunicated Scientologists named Marianne de Grimston and uh, Robert de Grimston. They get kicked out of Scientology by L. Ron Hubbard. They get excommunicated. Oh, wow. Okay. And they decide they're going to start their own kind of like uh, psychoanalytic therapy organization. And it turns into a little bit of a commune. And this is in London They start to get a whole bunch of rich guys And they kind of all get together it Turns into a bit of a commune Then de Grimston starts to go down a little bit of a satanic path And starts to get really crazy with it And basically comes up with the idea And this is not so crazy He says, to really understand humanity You have to embrace both good and evil That's mm. inside all of us And That kind of makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Catholicism, Catholics, they just deny that you have anything bad, (laughs) you know, that you have ill thoughts or whatever. And so he says, no, we got to embrace both of it. And But then they start to go really down the deep end and they get into, like, Satanism. They get called the mind benders of Mayfair. They get called uh, these occultists and they get kicked out of the UK. And then they start these cells that go all over the United States, Toronto, New Orleans, New York, LA, San Francisco. And one of their big hubs is San Francisco. They're hooked up with the flower kids and they're in the hate Ashbury. And that's where theoretically they meet Charles mm. Manson. Uh, Charles Manson hangs out with them. He hangs out with a bunch of guys coming out of prison, uh, but he hangs out with the, with, with the process. He hangs out with a whole bunch of others. And, Suddenly, a couple days later, a couple weeks later, he starts his own cult <laughs> called, called The Family. He goes <laughs> down to LA and, you know, where he said he hooks up again with, with the process. Um, the process is also theoretically connected to RFK's assassination. The process goes underground and then they appear suddenly in the early 1970s in New York City. Now, Maury Terry says that somehow the process is connected to Berkowitz, and I'm not 100% sure that that is exactly true, but new stuff is coming up every day, and we actually find some really interesting connections. I spoke to a guy who worked in an occult shop in Hmm. New York City called The Magical Child, and I was like, Maury Terry made made all these wacko connections about the process. He's like, actually, no. The process, when we were all hanging out in occult shops, the process were the people that we were afraid of. Like they were weird. They had these German shepherds. So I was like, and he's like, so when we started to hear that, like the son of Sam thing happened, we all knew it was an occult crime because we had been hearing rumors. And then when we heard that dogs were getting sacrificed, like we found that to be pretty interesting. And we all internally thought it was the process. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. So Mm -hmm. that's brand new. That didn't come out in our documentary at all.
1: Wow. So, once again, there's so many ties, and that's what I love about how you told this whole story. About you know, this, it ties into the Manson family and ties into the Satanic And once again, it's like you find a kernel of one that relates to the other, and suddenly you've got a whole story. Yeah. One of the most interesting parts of the whole documentary, to me, is when Maury Terry finally meets David Berkowitz. <laughs> And it's there's a great quote from one of the cats, the Australian guy. I can't recall his name. Who said it's almost like Sherlock Holmes meeting his Moriarty? Yeah. Tell us about how, how that kind of happened. How did how did Mori, how was he able to work his way up to finally getting to this, you know, ultimate goal of getting to talk to the guy that he's been writing books about, et cetera, et cetera.
2: So first of all, that guy Wayne Darwin. Yes, that's the guy. That dude is the supposedly where. Um, Robert Downey Jr.'s Australian character in Natural Born Killers comes.
1: Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. And
2: the guy talks all this and he's like Nick and Mallory, you know, so it's that dude. <laughs> Good call. Okay. So it's Wayne Darwin. And he's 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 crazy. He's great, dude. So what happens is Maury is having these long exchanges back and forth with Berkowitz. And he's always trying to get Berkowitz to kind of tell him the truth. And they have this crazy letter writing exchange and then, like he and Berkowitz basically, more kind of get into. Berkowitz cl- shuts down, you know, mm. and it's it's always like trying to get Berkowitz like the kitten out from under the couch, like, right? Like, do me, like, 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 tell me this, tell me that, you know. So, what happened was there is a cop named New York City cop named Marcus Canones, who is an occult cop. He. Is Christian, but he's an occult cop and he goes to all these different prisons and kind of speaks to people and he becomes friends with David Berkowitz and he also becomes friends with Maury Terry and he says to David Berkowitz, David, my friend Maury would like to meet you and my and Ma, David's like, oh, Maury Terry, the guy who used to write me and he's like, yes and so Marcus Canonez basically arranged for the two to meet more he goes, more he talks to him and basically convinces Berkowitz that after 16 years, they're gonna finally talk and Berkowitz is gonna do his first lot taped interview. Right. It was it was a huge deal. Sure. And basically that's how oh, that's gosh. how the two got to got to
1: meet. No, I know it was a huge deal, but so the point is when he gets a chance to actually talk to him. Let's talk. Let's talk about kind of what some of the results were. Especially, there's a lot of the differences between. Uh, I believe, at least in the documentary, there was two times that Berkowitz and Maury spoke. Let's talk about what happened in in episode one. Shall we say? And the differences that went down in episode two and how far were those inter- interviews between each other, by the way?
2: Yeah, no, th- that's a good question. 1993 and 1997. So okay, in the first- it was some time.
1: Yeah. Right. So basically it's, it, it's always trying to like
2: squeeze information out of Berkowitz. And some people think that Berkowitz is playing games. Like it's a cat and mouse thing like this. Like basically it's a mine hunter, right? right? Some people right. are like, this is mine hunter. Right. And basically the first time, more he gets Berkowitz to admit that he didn't act alone. Now that's huge. That is like a bombshell. Like what New York city, you know, they had been believing for 16 years at Berkowitz, you know, the demon dog story. And he's like, no, I didn't act alone, but he's still being cagey. And he's saying, you know, I had some accomplices and he names John Carr and Michael Carr. Now, It's very easy to name those two dudes because those two dudes happened to be dead because they died in really weird, mysterious circumstances. You know, like literally a year and 18 months after this thing happened, the crimes originally happened. Like suddenly the guys who like people were like, hmm, I think they're involved. They suddenly die.
1: Well, and what kind of that is, would say is that if you believe they're a part of an overall conspiracy, satanic cult, whatever, once they get into the position where they could actually talk and tell some stories, they get murdered in, you know, killed, sorry, in mysterious auto accidents, etc. And by the way, and that shit is true. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. like suddenly
2: if we want to reverse back a little bit, you know, Uh, Basically, in the months after the investigation, you know, Maury Terry says, you guys need to look at this guy, John Carr. Like, you never looked at him. And people start to be like, John Carr. And they start to look and say, oh, he looks like this. Suddenly, they find out that John Carr shoots himself in the head with a shotgun Mm. basically months after. And then John Carr has a brother, Michael Carr, who mysteriously dies in a car accident on the West Side Highway going like 100 miles an hour. Too much. It is a little bit too much, and that's the thing about Maury. And like you knew, he was kind of onto something because everybody he looks into suddenly dies, and then you're like, okay, you're on the right, you're on the right track. So in this interview, Berkowitz admits, yes, Mike, John, and Michael Carr, you know, they were shooters, but he won't say who the other shooters were, and he really won't say anything else. But that's still a win. It's a big win. Yeah, and. and you know Wayne Darwin is super happy. You know he's like a like one of these reality producers. He's like, oh, this is gonna be great, man. <laughs> you know, and then suddenly it all blows up, and the press starts to come back, and they're like bullshit, and the NYPD starts to say bullshit, and it just gets to a huge spat. But it was pretty big. I mean, this was this this was a big thing, and they sold this Inside Edition, and and and, and there you go. But Maury doesn't get what he really needs. He needs names. He needs the names of the other people because he needs, like, Berkowitz to come clean about everything. And so he hounds Berkowitz for, like, another four years. Like, come on, tell me the truth. Now, Berkowitz doesn't want to tell the truth for a number of reasons. One, his throat got slashed in prison years earlier. Yeah, I saw that. He got 50 stitches across his neck.
1: It was never really explained. Like, did that just happen or was he
2: threatened or no, some guy, I mean, you know, 50 stitches across the neck is not like, Oh <laughs> yeah. I accidentally shivved you, you know, 50 <laughs> stitches across the neck is like, let me pull your head out, you know, your neck yeah. up and try. And the Sam. You Here yeah. You go, buddy. yeah. 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 So basically, and I have to agree with it. Like that was a message to shut up. You right. Know? Right. F- 50 stitches across the front of your neck is a message to shut up. And, This is like what smart cults do. Smart cults basically get your parents' information and say, we'll kill your family if you ever do this. You know, it's like what the Mexican cartels do, basically. And so Burkowitz was adopted. So he's like super into his parents because he's adopted. So if they threaten to kill his father, like he does think it's going to happen. Like all his other buddies died. So he didn't want to talk for a long time. So finally, his dad passes away, and uh, during the from the first to the second interview, and the second interview, he says he's going to come clean. Well, during that time, Maury had gone down like some serious rabbit holes, and you know, they, he gets Berkowitz in there, and he starts going after Berkowitz, like tell me this, tell me that. Maury starts to get a little like. Overly into like the children issue And the whole nine yards and he Kind of like just gets super aggressive In the interview and kind of screws It up because he's this is his Moment right this this is his moment where he's Going to finally prove to the world And Berkowitz isn't giving him anything Berkowitz is just like "Mm -hmm, nothing
1: He's yes and knowing him yeah
2: yeah 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 and and I think And I think you know Maury kind of got Freaked because that was his moment and you know, he had built everything up, you know? That, he's gonna yeah. finally prove to the world that he's tr- right. And then suddenly Berkowitz doesn't say anything.
1: It almost seems like, and they say that, like that, that uh, Maury was leading him into answers. Mm-hmm. And Berkowitz was playing along, but he's giving them nothing. It's like, would you say that when you walked down this street that you went to the first door instead of the left? Yes. Like there's nothing to it, right? Well, look, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, it's like Berkwitz isn't a
2: talker, <laughs> you know? By definition, he's not really a talker. Uh, well, you know, maybe a little bit, but like Berkwitz didn't want to go there. And I think Maury, look, you know, not to defend Maury, yeah, he was leading, right? But at the same time, it's like if you get in that moment and, you're, and your interviewee is going to clam up like you are going I to do it. of course you're going to do everything you
1: can to get this guy to say anything and both of us have been there being you know your documentary. I'm a podcast so i've been on the line with guests who's like don't you understand the concept of a podcast is the Oh, <laughs> right. Like you're giving me nothing here. I mean, at that point I'll
2: just sit there until wear him down. You know, until until like, you know, yeah. we get for breakfast. I mean, you know, you want to
1: elaborate so, on that? In your opinion, why wasn't Berkowitz talking at that point? I mean, he knows what he knows why why Maury's coming in. Well, here's the thing.
2: David Berkowitz is a Patsy in every sense of the sense word. The
1: word. Gotcha.
2: Okay. He's a follower. You know. What I think, in some ways, it was with John and Michael Carr and the rest of the children and the group that he hung out with. I think it was like, Mikey likes it, you know. I think yeah. it was like, oh, give the gun to Berkey, Berkey, you'll do it, right. you know, like, like oh, you know, Berkey hasn't been laid. Like, he's kind of an incident. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like, Berkey hasn't had sex. Like, oh, you two girls go with Berkey in the corner. You know, now, hey, Berkey, you're going to go shoot this guy for us, right? Like, I think it was one of those jams, you know? And so Berkey has always been a follower. And so I think Maury kind of cajoled him into giving the, <laughs> the interview. You know, I think Maury wore him down, like, come on, come on. And he's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And he's like, listen, you're going to help all these people. You need to help all these people. And and remember, by the way, another interesting and important point is that Berkowitz had found religion. Right. So, you know, this is an opportunity for Berkowitz to spread the gospel that, that, that he knows about. And so... I think it was, if it was like, if we're going to talk about like the gospel, Berkowitz is going to go off. But if it's going to talk to like, okay, so first you like lit a fire and then you, you, you did some incantations and then you went in and like slit her throat. Like if they're going right. to talk like that, he doesn't want to go there. So I happen to think he probably, I think Maury probably agreed. And got Berkowitz and and did the kind of religious part of the interview and then went to a lot of other stuff and Berkowitz wouldn't go there. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying?
1: Perfect sense. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So maybe false pretenses.
1: As we start to to wind down here, there's a couple of questions I want to ask you as a filmmaker. One... um, I guess the question I want to ask you, like, why, why did you make this? Did you make this because you wanted to expose the cult or did, or did you want to kind of put a spotlight on the, on the legacy of Maury Terry and and this work that was unfinished for him combination of the two?
2: Almost neither. I think I wanted to talk about how the media creates mythologies, right? David Berkowitz and the Demon Dog. Such a great and, point. And I kind of wanted to rip that band aid off and be like, come on. Like, you know, even the things that we think are so institutionalized stories right. may not be true. You know, like the biggest serial killer in New York City, the most famous case, you know, and even that may not be true. And so it's a way for us to question everything and start to really like, use our heads you know about the stories that were were told about what police narratives they are and also like especially for someone who does true crime i think we need cautionary tales about true crime as much as we need all these stories about true crime like our obsessions aren't always healthy i, I did it for me dude because i'm going down a lot of rabbit holes yeah. and i want to i want to be able to pull myself out and so in some ways It's my own cautionary tale.
1: Which is kind of the the true concept of art. You make art for yourself first and foremost, right? To satisfy and indulge your own creativity. But it's interesting to me because like I said, after going through the ranks, the rabbit holes of all these different um, serial killers over the last year, Henry Lucas just gave up to everybody. And you realize because the cops are like, listen, we can't figure out who killed Jim call Lucas. Ah, he uh, we got a we got a conviction. Uh Gacy, they would not believe the allegations against Gacy because he was putting on parades and he was part of the 4H club or whatever the f it is. It's like all of these things that we see is that sometimes uh, you know we don't want to bag on the cops, but sometimes the cops don't want to go that far because oh, come on. There's no way he would have done it or Um, And I just felt that this case of the sons of Sam really connected with me based on what we learned about the Gacy case and specifically the Henry Lucas, where they weren't even looking at facts. They just wanted convictions. Look, you know, it's Chinatown, Jack,
2: you know, you (laughs) got big cities, you got politics, call. you know, and you got, you know, people just want to go home at the end of the day, you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, it's, we actually have to take more care of our cops is the point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. In in a different way. It's like, you don't give everybody free reign, you know, you pay them well, you know, you give the detectives, you know, good money uh, so that they'll stay longer so that they'll do more. And you don't overload them with work. You you know, you make it a good experience where like everybody respects each other, you know, And, and, and that's part of it. But like, you know, the politics, man, that's, that's what you, mm-hmm. you got, you know, politics around the world, you know, so you got to think about that.
1: Last couple of questions for you, Josh, in your opinion, what do you think if you had to try and kind of encapsulate it? Who were the real sons of Sam who, who killed those people uh, and shot the other seven in that summer of 77? Berkowitz says it was five people. Yeah, he admits to a handful of them.
2: And, and he admits to two of them.
1: Oh, so he says it's only five, not six? No, no, six, five plus him. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So,
2: and he admits to the first one, which is very interesting because they wanted him to pull the trigger at the first one because, you know, whatever you do after that, Berkey, you pull the trigger at the first one, you know, you started it. It's your fault, right? It's your fault, you know, and and the sixth one where the first letter was dropped, hmm. you know, with theoretically his handwriting. And Berkowitz says that there were five other people. Two were the Carr brothers. This is what Berkowitz says. So this is may not be true. And this is both my opinion and just what Berkowitz says. The two Carr brothers and three other people. Whether he actually has the names of those three other people correct, I'm not so sure. We have a podcast called Searching for the Sons of Sam. Right. Uh, it's my, my first podcast. <laughs> I, uh, I uh, was doing that as I'm doing this. And... You know, we go through and say who those, at least who one of those other names are. So I think that's the closest we're ever going to get to knowing the truth behind this case. Did Berkowitz act alone? No. I really, really don't think so. And I think if you look at the evidence, the preponderance evidence, you'll see. Was there a cult? I don't know, define a cult, you know, right. define a Satan cult, you know, was there a bunch of dudes who got together who liked to do bad things and call themselves part of a group? I mean, it could have been a cult. It could have been a motorcycle gang. It's whatever you want to call yourselves at that day in that time, you know? Right. Does that make sense? You know,
1: it makes perfect sense. And that's the thing that I really enjoyed about watching this. And once again, there's so much to it, you know, a, possibility of a gang be calling them satanic cult or you know the cult of freaking mickey mantle whatever the hell you want to say but but to me it's just the posturing is not the right word it's the need of the police to and for the people as well let's be honest if they would have said that we've caught the son of sam but there's seven of the other of them that city of new york in 78 79 would have been just as is as scared even more so then their heads would have popped off right then then you're looking at every guy who's is he part of the cult is she part of the cult it's almost like when you're talking about aliens in the area 51 it's almost like what you don't know is better than what you know so if you can tag it on pin the tail on the berkowitz and then just it's almost like there's two sides to the story there's our side, because I'll be with you, with Joshua and with Maury Terry that you want the truth. And there's also the other side, which I think a lot of these cops are involved with. They're going, just leave it, man, just stop. Cause if you continue down this rabbit hole, it's just going to cause mass hysteria, but damn it. We want the truth, but which one, which one on the scales of justice is better.
2: You know, it was interesting. I spoke to an investigator who reopened the case and the investigator tells me he's like, Oh my God. He's like, we went back in, they changed the police reports, they lied. There was like, and there was just like such bad police, you know, policing. And I said, well, great, let's do an interview. He's like, right. nah, what's, what's the use? <laughs> and <laughs> the irony is like, dude, the original policing was bad. And you're going to tell me, you're, you know, when you went back and looked at it, you saw how bad it was. The point is, is that if you tell us, then the, you know, the first guys may not do it again. Yeah. You know, you know, so it's changing those narratives after so many years is also really, really tough.
1: Yeah. Hard to change the, uh, like you said, the attitude when the truth is not necessarily the truth at this point, you know,
2: it's all that movie who shot Liberty Valance, you know, when the truth become, you know, print the legend, you know, when the truth become, you know, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And, that's what we're up against. And I wonder how much is that on all of these crime shows.
1: Last question for you, Josh. I'm a big, like I said, I'll watch anything by Kevin Smith. I'll watch anything by the Coen brothers and anything by Joshua Zeman. What other ideas uh, projects do you have in the chamber right now? Cause they're always diverse of crazy topics, but they're always great at the
2: moment. I'm going to take a little bit of a break. I do have a movie coming out in the summer about a whale um we went out to find this well oh, it calls right. out a frequency that no other well can understand it's called the loneliest well so we went out and looked for this well it's kind of like an ahabian story That's cool. uh, so we have that coming out and then we shall see what the next story is it'll be i i think let's see where true crime goes
1: you have ideas i have ideas let me ask you this J- just from from a from a pr- production standpoint how long did it take cuz this is about a 4 hour piece there's there's four parts and they're all about an hour long. From from soup to nuts, start, finish, how long did it take for you to make all this? From
2: the time that we got a green light to
1: go? Sure, or, or kernel of idea till now. Kernel of idea, 12, 12 years. 12 years, oh my gosh, wow. From green light at Netflix to end,
2: uh, 16 to 18 months.
1: That's still a quick turnover, man. That's a quick turnover.
2: We were shooting right in the middle of pandemic as well. And right. then we had to make do the rest of it remotely.
1: Well, dude, like I said, I'm a big fan of your work. I'm glad we got to connect. And, uh, big fan of yours. Thank you. And like I said, anybody that, that – there's a reason why it's top three, top top ten, whatever it is. This is a really great documentary. That once again, it's not just about David Berkowitz or the Son of Sam. I just love the whole pop culture element of just seeing New York City in the 70s. And there's a great point too where one of the cops comes on and says – 81, everyone's talking about Studio 54. He goes, Every club was like this. Everybody was doing Coke. Everybody was having sex in the bathroom. It's like, that's a fun time.
2: <laughs>
1: it's true. That's, you know,
2: it was written on the back of the one on um, one of the envelopes. It's called Absolute Depravity. And yeah. that was really what was going on in New York City at the time. Like, it, shit was real.
1: <laughs> well, you nailed it, dude. And I appreciate it. And congratulations. Thanks, Chris. Take care, buddy. Thanks, dude.